Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Alien conversations, having a conversation with aliens. A lot of you guys have had conversations with something in your head, right? So, there's a fine line somewhere where it's not good, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm not sure of that fine line, but um, I know I've had mine speak before with with um, uh, Bigfoot. I know that I've had other things given to me. If you're a remote viewer, you're going to hear things called a P7. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm about is kind of the similarities of all the different things that we discuss. And tonight, our first guest, he talks about conversations with aliens and also talks about a hallucinogenics. And I'm very interested in the topic because years ago, it was one of my first coast-to-coast memories. I believe it was with Graham Hancock. And I have since heard that what I heard was not the case, yet some people say it was the case, so maybe Mandela effect. But I thought I remember Graham Hancock saying uh, that he took ayahuasca and what he saw, the other people saw in the same realm. Now, I have since heard, no, that's not right, that's not right. But other people said they remember hearing the same thing. And I don't know how I could even make that up, but... Okay, Mandela effect. We'll go with it. But alien conversation, psychedelic drugs, that's tonight. That's what we're going to talk about tonight with Dr. Andrew Gallimore, computational neurobiologist, pharmacologist, chemist, well-known for his studies in the neural basis of psychedelic drug action. And his question is, should we consider specific psychedelic drugs such as DMT to be much more efficient and reliable methods for communicating with alien intelligence? Uh, More than orthodox approaches involving electromagnetic pulses or passenger uh, interstellar travel or, you know, I don't know, maybe even channeling. He can maybe include that in there, too, because I know a lot of people do that. Or just go out in the Rockies with me and they'll beam a light down on you. And you can decide from there if you want to continue your conversations with them. But I'm sure there's good and bad out there. And uh, so let's bring on uh, Dr. Andrew Gallimore. Uh, it's his first time ever on Coast to Coast. And he's going to answer those questions for you. And I think the biggest question maybe to ask him, first of all, is, as we welcome him in, what exactly is an alien? Hi there. Dr. Andrew Gallimore, welcome to Coast to Coast. Hello, Connie. Uh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. You're, you're welcome. Don't and you guys. He's he lives in Japan, but he's got that British accent, <laughs> and it's nice. <laughs> so, what is yeah. an alien? That's pro- probably the bigger question because you have a different definition that some people may not. Uh, they may be thinking of the little gray walking around. Well, yeah, I think I, I think I have a broader definition, or at least I'm not. Uh, I don't like to be definitive on how you would define an alien. I think alien, uh, the term really just means other. It means um, I think of it as some kind of uh, intelligence uh, that is not of this earth. Um, now, the only kind of intelligence that we communicate on this earth are really well, well are humans, I guess. So we're talking about some kind of intelligence that exists um, either outside of Earth, uh, outside of our solar system, outside of our galaxy, or perhaps, and this is where things, I think, become a little bit more interesting, 
uh, or, or different at least, is aliens that exist outside of um, either outside of our universe or um, equally as interesting, kind of deeply embedded within the structure, uh, very, very deep levels of our reality. Um, because I think there's this assumption, as you said, the idea that, that an alien is this uh, this little gray man, this little being that, that comes from another planet. And, and there is, um, you know, we exist as this biological form and we kind of assume that and any alien that we, we, we confront or that we are able to communicate with will also be of that form. Um, however, I think it's highly likely that this, this kind of biological form is likely to be a very brief stage in the kind of evolution and technological advancement of a species. Once a species reaches the level of advancement where it can even conceive of, of aliens and of, of leaving the planet and reaching for the stars, um, they're probably only a few hundred years away from actually dispensing with the biological form entirely and becoming uh, what's often referred to as post-biological, um, meaning um, the, bio the biology is gone. You know, the, the, the biology or the intelligence is kind of instantiated in some other form. You know, this could be a digital form. The idea of, of 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 an intelligence uploading itself onto a computer is the one that oh wow right most people wow. right but yeah. I think that even that is a little bit short sighted because I think um, ultimately you know you're not going to have these planets dotted around the galaxy with kind of stacked hard drives and um, you know running civilizations <laughs> on on this kind of big big kind of MacBooks or something it's not going to be like that I think. I think, you know, an artificial intelligence or a post-biological intelligence is more likely to have discovered the means for instantiating themselves deep within the structure of reality somehow, um, at perhaps, you know, sub-sub-sub-quantum level in ways that we simply, we have no concept, uh, conception of uh, at this point. And, I, and so I think, whilst I think the universe is almost certainly teeming with life, the vast majority of it, the vast uh, proportion of this life is going to like, most likely to be post-biological. And perhaps in some ways, the reason we can get into it might actually be easier to communicate with than the biological forms. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. It does. No, I was going to, I was going to crack a little joke of, did you, um, is this from all your education that you've theorized this and put this together or is it, you know, under one of these uh, drugs? <laughs> I was going to kind of throw <laughs> funny at you there. <laughs> Both. Okay. <laughs> okay. We frosted the line. Good. We can go there. Okay. <laughs> so well, yeah. How did you figure out all this stuff with the drugs in, involved as well, besides just taking them? Was it the education first or was it the drugs first? But what I really enjoy is the fact that, and I, th I think I read it somewhere or heard it with w some of the information with you is that we could, and, and what I thought I heard from Graham Hancock before with Art Bell years back on Coast to Coast, I thought I heard it this way, but that w like you and I, we could take an edible that was uh, formulated perfectly in some way, um, and we could meet on the seventh realm or the 18th realm or whatever, and we could be there together 
me uh, in the States, you where you are in Japan, and we can take it at a certain time and meet together and go have our own little journey for a while? Is that something you see could happen? Yes. I mean, well, I love it. (laughs) I'll buy it. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's good reason to think so, because if we if we take seriously the idea that these molecules, these psychedelic molecules, uh, I think drugs is is probably not a good word for them. You know, these are technologies. Sorry. Molecular technologies. (laughs) It's okay. No, no, no. That's fine. I often call them drugs, but I think molecular technologies is a much cooler name for them. Oh, (laughs) that is cooler. It is cooler. Closer to the truth, you know, that if they really are allowing you to interface in some way with some other space, some other uh, higher dimensional reality, um, then there's no reason why it shouldn't be possible for two people to take the drug at the same time. However, however, um, it would require you to have some kind of mapping of the space to understand the location, because at the moment when you take something like DMT, it's like being fired out of a cannon into the a kind of generally a, almost like a random location within this uh, hyper-dimensional, hyperbolic space. Uh, and it's unlikely uh, that two people, even if they're in the same room when they take the, uh, the molecule, uh, that will, they will fire it into the same kind of location. So I think there's a lot of learning that we need to do, a lot of exploration and, and perhaps even mapping. Um, and it's for this reason, actually, that uh, as a game we can talk about later, the idea of developing DMT as a technology and working with Rick Strassman to actually extend this DMT experience over uh, over much longer. It normally lasts kind of five minutes and you kind of burst into this space. You see these incredible beings you, uh, and then you're kind of dragged out again, just as you're kind of the whole thing is starting to stabilize. So I think... Um, in the future, in the near future, we'll be able to actually extend this experience for hours or even days, perhaps, and actually go on these kind of DMT space expeditions where the explorer can go in there, remain there, uh, and and conduct experiments, um, map the geometry and the structure of the space, and then these kind of things where two people can take the drug and the molecule, sorry, uh, and can go to the same <laughs> region of space. <laughs> trip myself up on that. Um, <laughs> See, you know, it's easier. <laughs> it's easy, right? Yeah. So, so I think, yeah, these things are possible, but um, not as not necessarily that straightforward. Although there are anecdotal reports of people going to the same space at the same time and describing um, um, the same experience after they come back. Um, they, you know, they take often it's with a uh, close partner, like a, a boyfriend or a husband or wife, and they will take the the, the DMT at the same time, go into the space, and then when they come back, they each report their experiences, and they go, "Oh my God, you know, that, that's exactly what happened. You know, I saw that uh, exact same thing." So, so you see that anecdotally that this kind of thing happens. Um, uh, wow. But there, there hasn't been any kind of formal studies. And that's what we really need is, is, is people who are really experienced using DMT um, uh, to actually see if it, it can be controlled. Now, that's that's basically even time travel. You know, you're, uh, you can put that under time travel. You can also, um, you know, along the way, people would tell me that's what you could do with astral projection, that you could do the things that you were saying. And I've kind of done a little, you know, learning it and trying to do it and things like that. But um, I never got to the point of where it felt like what people 
would say, I, I never have. Not that other people have not, but I've never been able to just fly and do this and that and see all these neat things and travel. And uh, like a lot of people have said, and people have courses like that. And maybe I just need to take their courses and that's fine. Give me a call, you guys. That would be great. I'd love to do it. But um, you're actually talking about how you can induce that and make it happen. But the fact that you can go there and then study and then bring back information. That's really cool. So that's going as well into uh, the different dimensions. Have we proven that there are different dimensions in order to even do this? Well, no. I mean, this is the great thing. This is why it's so... Um, people will often dismiss the DMT experience with such kind of glib uh, facility. They'll say, oh, well, it's just a hallucination. You're just hallucinating. That's the easy thing. That's the easy explanation. But as a neuroscientist, it, that doesn't really make any sense because we know, um, as much as we know about how the brain works, we know what the brain is doing when, in, you know, when you're kind of in normal waking life, your brain is building this model of the environment. You know, your brain is evolved to construct this model of the environment which is the world you live within you know you live in like a waking dream that's receiving patterns of information of sensory information from the environment and your brain has, has learned and evolved to build this model your brain doesn't know or shouldn't know how to construct these hyperdimensional realities filled within you know hyperintelligent entities that doesn't make any sense it's like, um, uh, I always say it's like a, a British child who only speaks English suddenly flipping and, and speaking Central Siberian Yupik, uh, you know, or some other completely exotic language, you know, some African click language or something. It would be like, it would be confounding if that happened because there's, you know, how did he learn to do that? And it's the same kind of thing, you know, well, how did the brain learn to construct these hyperdimensional, high-dimensional spaces uh, with impossibly complex geometries uh, filled with inexpressibly and unfathomably intelligent uh, beings? Uh, where did it learn to do that? It's not, it's not straightforward to dismiss it, even from an orthodox neuroscientific perspective. Um, you know, and I come from that world although I certainly have my feet in uh, more speculative domains, that's for sure. Uh, but I still understand um, what would be required uh, if we were to dismiss the DMT space as mere hallucination. And, and for me, it just doesn't hold water. So for those reasons, I, I can't say to you, Connie, I'm 100% sure we've proved it, that this is, this is a, a freestanding objective reality. Um, but I, uh, I can't, I, I can't dismiss it either. And so I, I go in there with, with a kind of uh, a, a healthy ag agnosticism, but you know, very, very open-minded and very open to the idea that um, you really are dealing with intelligences. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.